We are teaching angelology, and uh, you have 14 pages of notes. Now, if uh, I'm not mistaken, being a somewhat uh, essentially at times long-winded, this, this should be enough for this class. But I did put a, I did put a footnote that you will run across. If we run, it, we run so that we have extra time, I'm going to do something that uh, Pastor Kevin expected me to do anyway. And that is, I'm going to bring in and reincorporate those notes that we did in Sunday school on the sons of God, daughters of men, on showing what demons do. Now, the reason we don't have that in this class is because that is the work of fallen spirit beings. Angelology, primarily, as we view it, is going to be the study of good angels, primarily, although the abilities of both groups, good and bad, are going to be the same. So, you see what our course requirements are. The only text is the Bible. We don't have any prerequisites for this course. And, of course, we recommend taking all 12 classes to make sure that you don't miss anything. Now, in our introduction, we said this, and I, I say this in just about every class I teach because I believe that this is important. Even though we know it, uh, there may be others who pick up our notes or see our things, and my notes are available on, on our website for anybody that wants to have them. But we always say something like this. A study of any area of theology must begin with a clear understanding that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, written word of God. The Bible speaks for itself and must be interpreted literally. To take the Bible in any other way is to set, one, set up oneself as the final judge of what the Bible says and how it affects the lives of every believer. This is, it is therefore a serious error when anyone interprets the Bible in a non-literal fashion. Now, I believe Pastor hit upon that in the last class. One of the big problems we have today is that people flat refuse to take the Bible literally. If you take the Bible literally, you would not have any problem seeing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as being different from today. Now, I like to use numbers when I was thinking about it. I was thinking Numbers 11 when you look at what Moses said when he told the people he was telling some of his co-workers, as it were, that he wished God would put his Holy Spirit upon everybody. Now, if you take people to Numbers 11, let's go there just for a moment. This is, this is part, of the other, part of the last class. So, but these two classes fit together so well. and uh, I, th- I think it's just important to know this because you never know when you may run across somebody that has a problem. And you can show them the ministry of the Holy Spirit was different. If it was different then than it is now then it can't be the same. We can't have the same everything if this, if this major point is different. It's, uh, okay, so there, if you, the context goes way back early in the chapter where there were 70 elders who were going to have the Holy Spirit put upon them. 68 of them came down to the tabernacle and two of them remained in the camp. And so at verse 27 of Numbers 11, and there ran a young man and told Moses and, and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. Now those were two of the 70 men that were elders that God was going to put his Holy Spirit on so that they could help Moses with all the day-to-day affairs and, and disputes of the people. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said to them, My Lord Moses, forbid them. Now notice what Moses said. And Moses said to them, Envious thou, or do you, do you envy for my sake? Would God that he'd put, the, all the Lord's people were prophets, and that God would put on his spirit upon them. You notice what he said? It's a wish. He said, would God. It's not like he thought it was possible. He just says, I wish God would do this. In other words, it wasn't going to happen. And he knew it. But he wished it could happen. 
So if the Holy Spirit wasn't upon them and it was a wish that it could happen, how could anyone mistake what there was back here with what we have today? When the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, you can show somebody this. You can use this to show people. If they want to say that they had the same thing as we do, show them this one passage and say, now, how can it be the same if they couldn't even have the Holy Spirit upon them when we have the Holy Spirit in us? That's a big difference there. All the difference in the world. And so that's why we say that we need to take the Bible in a very literal, uh, literal fashion. By the way, I want to apologize to everybody. I don't have a test to, for you to take. I know, I know everybody's going to be deeply offended. I, 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 can hear, I can hear the regrets and sorrow all the way. I was going to try and work one up, but the uh, pastor said, you know, you don't have to do that. I was working to get this done. And... Hey, Don, you're my favorite teacher now. <laughs> See, I'm just, I just got all kind of brownie points here, Pastor. I tell you, that's all you have to do to get ahead. Now, <laughs> having said that, in this series, in this study, we want to look into Scripture to learn the origin, the nature, abilities, and the past, present, and future ministries of all three types of spirit beings. Now, as we said, this is primarily, we're going to be primarily focusing on good angels, on the ones that didn't fall, although the ones that did fall have the same abilities, but that's something that goes into a course on Satan and demonology. Now, I'm assuming, Pastor, that's coming up, and uh, I'm not volunteering for the course, but I'm assuming that's coming up. <laughs> but so, we will touch upon a little bit, and that's why we say that Time permitting, we may include that information because everybody loves the sons of God, daughters of men. It's, it's, it's better science fiction than you get off, off of television. It really is because it's not science fiction. It sounds like it, so it's even better than science fiction on TV. Now, in, in, in our study, we use the term angels. It's important to note that it's, it's, it's used of a specific class of spirit beings. Now, in, 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 in spirit beings, if you say angel, it's not a catch-all term. Some people think angel means any spirit being there is. It doesn't mean that. It's used in one specific group, and there's two other groups. So it's not a catch-all term. And uh, angels is restricted to a specific class of beings, and there are two other groups who are of a higher rank and importance in the program of God, which we're also going to touch upon. Now, we're going to go as far as Scripture can go, and I will not go into any theology of speculation. That's a little bit risky. It's fun, but I'm not going to do it. So, as we begin this study, it's important to note that the word angel in Hebrew and Greek just simply means messenger, and it is used in Scripture of human as well as spirit messengers. Now, the angels of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are examples of how the angel can refer to a human messenger, not a spirit being. So therefore, it's critical to note that context determines when it's true. I want to go just to, to Revelation chapter 2 for just a moment and make a few points and, and uh, tie it to something in the, in the uh, writings of Peter to show you why do we say that these have to be humans and why, is, why do we, oh, when I said we take the word of God literally, well, literally they are messengers. We're taking it literally. But can it be, let's, let's look what it says in, in Revelation 2.1, unto the angel of the church of, the, of Ephesus write. Now he's addressing the angel, and as you go down through here, he's going to be second person singular pronouns about this. So he's talking to the angel, not the whole church, he's talking to the angel of that church. He said, these things says, saith, 
he that hath holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how you cannot bear them that are evil, and how you have tried them, and said they are apostles, and are not, and found them liars. And you've borne, and you've had patience for my name's sake, and have not fainted. Now, has an angel ever done this, recorded any place in Scripture? Does that sound like something an angel would do? Well, go over to First Peter chapter 5, and I can, you can see, why would we say, we're taking this literally, we say the word, we're not allegorizing this, we say this word means messenger. But who is the messenger that will fulfill those things? His works, his labor, how he labored for the church? Well, let's look at First Peter chapter 5, and look at the first three verses. The elders are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that shall follow. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Now, doesn't that sound like what this angel in Revelation 2.1 was doing? That's what he was doing, wasn't it? He was taking the oversight. He was leading the people. And he wasn't bullying them. It says I, that, uh, that being, neither being lords of, of, over God's heritage in verse 3, is, uh, that's something I wish more men would understand. Being lords over the heritage, you don't have the authority to beat the sheep. You don't have the authority to bully the sheep. You don't have the authority to tell the sheep, we're doing this or else. And there's even been men that have put people out of the church because they wouldn't go along with what the pastor wanted to do. But that's not what Scripture says. So, in light of our study, though, you can see that when we look at the use of the word angel, context has to tell us. And so there are places like this in Revelation 2 and 3, those, those angels that are there, they are the pastors of those churches. And you'll probably run into a little bit of this in church history next quarter, which uh, I will also be taking my hand at. Now, what are we going to talk about first? Well, let's start off by recognizing the uniqueness of spirit beings. And this is important. Now, I borrowed this, as you notice, I put in a footnote. But I, I, liked, I, I liked where I got this from, and I liked this man, and I added another point to it. But I think is, is a good summary of the uniqueness of spirit beings. And this is spirit beings. You notice I didn't say angels, because in my writing, if I say spirit beings, then I'm including cherubim, seraphim, and angels. If I say angels, then I'm only including angels. So I said spirit beings. So this is going to include everybody. So the first thing we know that all spirit beings are created. They are not eternal. Now look over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, if anybody has a problem with this, and you may run across people that don't like to take this literally, but this is about Satan in, in Ezekiel 28. And you can see it very clearly. Because it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating chapter because what it does is it starts off talking about a person that's called the Prince of Tyrus. And he's identified as being a man. He says, he says therefore, because you set your heart at being, let's see, um, let's see, he's called a man in here. Where is that at in the 28th chapter? Uh, let's see, wise of Daniel. Oh, He's called, oh yeah, verse 2 it says, yeah, there it is. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyrus, thus saith the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. 
Yet you're, that thou art a man and not God, though you set your heart as the heart of God. So he's talking to, he starts talking to the prince. Now, a prince in, in the royalty. Now, we don't understand royalty necessarily in this country. We just have celebrities. <laughs> we don't have royalty. <laughs> Big difference, right? <laughs> but in that case, if you had a prince, did he have the same authority as the king? No, not while the king was alive. If the king appointed that prince and he was the crown prince, that meant he would succeed him, then he might have a little bit more of authority. So this is kind of like a crown prince because when you go down a little bit further, look what it says in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Oh, so there's a king and a prince. Well, it sounds like the prince is exercising a lot of authority. Well, let's see about this king of Tyrus. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, You seal up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, and the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and the gold, and the workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes was prepared in thee the day you were created. You are the anointed cherub, that overshadows. Now, word for covers there, it overshadows. It means to stand above. He always stood above everything else. Because you'll notice back in verse, verse 12, it said, you seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This one was the sum. He was the blueprint. He was the, he was the matching point. You could measure by him. He was the sum of beauty. He was the most perfect one that God created. He was the anointed cherub covered. And of course, if you read down through here, you'll know who he is. You can see who he is. He's going to become Lucifer. So he was the greatest. Now, if the greatest spirit being that God had, that God created, was created, then I think it's pretty fair to say that all the others were created. Would you not say? I think it's very fair to say that. So this is the great one. And anybody that ever has a problem with this, if pe people want to come here and they don't want to take this literally, but my question would be in verse 14. If we take the Bible literally, how do we get around the fact that thou art the anointed cherub it covers? Now, Joyce, have you ever called pastor a cherub or an angel? You probably called some of the other things, like maybe... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can say that because my wife would say the same thing about me. I, no, I'm not an angel. <laughs> so, you see what I'm saying. How do you get around the fact that says you are the anointed cherub? There's never a human being in Scripture any place... And we, we have the references on the bottom of the page, by the way, you'll notice, and there's a footnote down, number three, that I have every place where cherub or cherubim is, occurs in the Old Testament, and it doesn't occur in the New Testament. You can see them all. Go through them and see if you see one time when it's used of a human being. It is never used of a human being. So those who want to say that, verse, that Ezekiel 28, verses 12 and following, are not about Satan, then who is the cherub that he's talking about? Isaiah, or rather Ezekiel says, you're the anointed cherub. God says that to him. Now, who's that anointed cherub then? Who is it? It's got to be somebody. It's got to be somebody that's really a cherub. It's got to be someone who was thrown out of the mountain of God and so on and so forth. You read down through here, you can't escape the fact if you take it literally, it's got to be Satan. Yeah, he's in the Garden of Eden. He, that, that overshadows, that, that word overshadow, and I did some work on this. And this is the same word that is used in the temple where you had the two, if you remember, in, in the Holy of Holies in the temple, you had two cherubim, and their wings touched, and they were overshadowing the mercy seat. In other words, they stood above it. Now, this one stood above. He was overshadowed. He stood above. What did he stand above? Everybody else. 
in beauty and wisdom. It says he, he stood up to some, so he, he overshadowed. He stood above everybody else in the fact that he was perfect in wisdom and beauty. He was complete. He overshadowed everybody. And I believe he administered from his point, from this point in here, he administered God's government with spirit beings. Because if you go back, this is before there were human beings. Do you realize that God didn't, you realize that God didn't have to have us here to have a government? God didn't have us here to have the, he didn't need us to have the decree. Do you realize that? Spirit beings were greater than we. It's really, when you get down to it, there's a lot more grace involved when you look at angelology and see what God had and what God has now. But nonetheless, so you can see the first point in here, that spirit beings, all of them, are created. They're not eternal. Now, secondly, while angels are far more powerful than men, they're not omnipotent. Only God's omnipotent. That's, that should be fairly... Now, there's a lot of things they can do, and we'll see in here. There's some things that they can do that are just mind-boggling, the power that they have, but they're still not omnipotent. There are still limits that God's put on all of them. Now, this one is interesting. The next point. All spirit beings, including Satan, are subject to God. Boy, now, uh, let's go to Job chapter 1. I, I love the book of Job. I've spent a lot of time studying it. And I would love to spend a lot more time studying, and I just haven't had that opportunity yet. But if you look at Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, you have the most interesting and remarkable exchange in Scripture. In those two chapters, you have the only time that Satan is speaking face-to-face with God, and he's looking for the opportunity to tempt somebody. And you can see, and when you read this... The Satan's sarcasm and his disrespect for God face-to-face is almost, well, it isn't almost, it's just flat unbelievable. Let's look what it says in Job chapter 1. And, by the way, when you get to the end of the book, do you know that God never told Job any of this? Unless he read the book, or unless he wrote the book, he didn't know about this. He didn't know what happened to himself. Because you get to the 38th chapter, what, what did God say to this man? I always love it. I get a kick out of it. It's just, where were you? Gird up your loins. Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Answer me. You know, he, didn't, he didn't explain. He just, so Job didn't know what was going on back here. But when you look back in, in Job chapter 1, starting at verse 6, now there was a day, or literally there was the day, which indicates it was a particular, this was a regular event. Now there was the day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. Now after this, you should write 1 Peter 5.8, because it says, Satan wanders about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan walks about on the earth. He's not walking about because he's a tourist. He doesn't, he, he's not a tourist. He's walking about. He's looking for those he can come and tempt. And the reason he's here. Because he wants to get permission. And you can see what is fascinating. When you read through this, when we're done with it, you tell me who you think set up the temptation of Job. You tell me who you think did it. But let's look at what it says in here. Now, in the exchange, God's going to be civil with this individual, but uh, he's not going to be too civil back. So, verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and one that... uh, Eschew with evil. I always said choose evil. 
You know, that's, I, I don't know why, but it's always struck me as being fun. I could just see this guy chewing a piece of fat and calling it evil. No, he's one that avoids. He turned away from evil. And so God says to him, have you considered? Now, that tells you when he said he was walking about in the earth, God, he, God says to him, have you considered Job? Well, when he's walking around, apparently he had considered Job because look what Satan's going to say. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Have you not made a hedge about, about him, about his house, about all he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his substance has increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will bless you to your face. Not curse, it's actually bless. And I, I was very surprised to see that, uh, that the, the classic the classic lexicon of the Old Testament, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, a big, thick monster of a book, he agreed with what I said. It made me feel good. I said, hey, I'm agreeing with a scholar, so maybe that does something for me. But this is sarcasm. Now, I don't know if you've ever used this terminology before, but I remember one time when Cheryl and I were at somebody's house, and we were, our kids were little, their kids were little, and somebody put a little one to bed, and like they typically do when there's excitement. They, the little one just howled because he didn't want to be back there. And so I believe Cheryl said, yep, he's sure blessing you for that. <laughs> and that's what I thought of here. That's, you know, that's kind of a little bit of irony or sarcasm. So Satan says to God, he'll bless you. to you. Now, now tell me how you would say that. He'll bless you to your face. This is Satan talking to the God of the universe. And he's saying this face to face. Is that hard to believe? For me, it is. But he did this. And so, and so the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth in the presence of the Lord. Now you'll notice, even in the Old Testament, even before the law, Satan could not touch one of God's children without permission. So in other words, Satan had no choice. He had to be obedient. So Satan comes back to God and says, Well, if you look at verse 10, he says, Job, he only worships you because you pay him. You pay him off. You pay him off. He's on the take. But you take away, you cut off his benefits, and he'll, he'll bless you to your face. Now, who, who do you suppose really, who would you suppose really arrange this temptation? Did Satan figure this out? Or was he baited? Look at it. God says, have you considered... Job, and Satan says, I can't touch him. Who was the one that really set this temptation up? God baited him because this guy came, and apparently Satan had somebody in mind. But when God got through with him, he took the bait, and he went after Job because he thought he could get Job. You see what happened here? This game, it's a chess match between these two. Here this guy, this being who thinks he's so smart, tries to bait God. And he doesn't realize that he was baited by God. And he took this temptation on. And he failed. He failed because Job did not fail the test. At the end of the book, you find out that three, his three friends failed. And they had, Job had to make offerings for them. But not Job. He didn't do anything wrong. It's very interesting. So you see this. But you see, if Satan can't even tempt a believer, then he's got to be subject to God. Now, there's other places, too. I was thinking, too, about the one... The one that's fun is where you have the, the, the 2,000 swine that go tearing down the hill and drown themselves. But that's only demons. But do you know, if you remember that passage in Matthew, it's in, the, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, and I think it's also in Luke, 
with the 2,000, the swine go down, they have to ask Christ for permission to go into the swine. Do you remember that? They had to ask for permission. So in other words, they are in a, they're in a tough situation. No matter what they do, every spirit being is answerable and accountable to God. And so when you look at what goes on today, you know, I wouldn't be afraid of what's happening in this world too much because they, Satan, gives, Satan has to get permission. God has to give these demons permission. The things that are happening out there in this world, God's given them permission to do it. And it's only going to go so far. And just like, the, just like Job, the one lesson of Job I think is interesting is a man that went through such tragedy at the end came out with twice as much as he had. Do you know that at the end of the book? You read the book in the last chapters. He wound up with twice as much as he had. And he lived another 140 years, which in that time was, was possible. So he had a good life. So God can take care of these things. But this is an important point, that all spirit beings, including Satan, are subject to God. Now, while angels can take bodily form, they exist as spirits, not physical beings. I want you to go over to Luke chapter 24 and see this, because uh, this is a place where people can have problems, because there's certain verses that people will misread, and, and, they, and it doesn't say that they can't have bodies. It, say, it says that they customarily don't. That's the way they normally exist, is to say that they can't have a body. Or make a body. No, it doesn't say that. Look what it says in Luke chapter 24. And it's verse, where am I at? I'm skipping ahead my notes. Uh, 39. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, they, they were quite, quite concerned because he appeared and, and he stood in the room. Verse 36. As they thus spake, Jesus stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be unto you. Now, here he came out of nowhere. He just, he was there. And so, but they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And then he said unto them, Why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit, now a spirit, that would include any, it would include cherubim, seraphim, all of them. A spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. Now a spirit does not have that. Does that mean they can't have it? Or is that just saying this is what they normally don't have? No, this is just simply saying that this is not customarily how they exist. They don't exist this way. They can. We found that's back. We'll, we'll talk more about that. It'll be in our notes a little bit later, and we'll resist for the time being. When we get there, we'll resist going into too much of the sons of God. But they can. They can do it because, remember, we said they have a lot of power. They're not omnipotent. But in those things that they can do, we're going to see that, yeah, they can make a body. They can do it. Now, the human eye is not able to see spirit beings unless they're enabled by God. Now, if you look over at 2 Kings chapter 6, this is one of those passages of Scripture that uh, you see some men in the Old Testament, you think, these guys really were pretty good. And in some cases, they really were. They really showed a lot of faith. But in this case, I think he showed that he had good sight because God gave this man sight. A lot of fascinating stories in the Old Testament. You read through the Old Testament, and I... I'm continually amazed at what God did through just common people in spite of their shortages and shortcomings, I should say. Now, in, in this fourth, sixth chapter, if you go back to verse, uh, verse, well, boy, the context goes way back. Back to verse 11 in the sixth chapter. We'll start reading there. Therefore, the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will, not, will you not show me which of you is for the king of Israel? Now, every time 
the king of Syria went to go and confront the king of Israel to invade, the king of Israel was warned by, this, by, the, by, by Elisha not to go there. And so this is the king of Syria. is frustrated. He says, well, tell me who's on his side. Verse 12, And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. And he said to them, Go and spy where he is, that I may, that I may send and fetch him. And, and it was told him, Behold, he's in Dothan. And therefore he, he sent thither horses and chariots, a great host, and they came by night and encompassed the city abound about. And when the servant of the man of God was, was risen early and gone forth, he, behold, he, a, a host encompassed the city, both with horses and chariots, and a servant went and said unto him, Alas, my master, how sh- what shall we do? This is how shall we do, or what shall we do? And he, and he answered, Fear not, for they that, are, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So, they can be seen. Now, it's interesting. I've, I'm not going to go into speculation, but I know from what I've read and what I've seen that we can only see a certain spectrum of light that's visible to us. And cats can see a lot more. You know, a cat can see at night better than we can see in the, in, in the broad, broad daylight, just about. Now, I'm just wondering if our eyes were adapted, if we could see spirit beings or not. I don't know. I just, it makes you wonder, Pastor. Now, that's theology of speculation, so we, we won't go there. But. So would that be a vision? <laughs> well, you know, I, I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes when some of those things happen with drugs where people see things, if maybe they don't mess with their natural capacity and all of a sudden for a moment they can see what they shouldn't be able to see. And uh, there's some things, honestly, I don't think any of us would want to see the spirit beings that are around us because you don't know what you're looking for. And you wouldn't like what you'd find in many cases. And I, <laughs> I, I'm, you can ask me after class. I'll tell you more about that maybe. So to this, we want to add something. And this, this is something that I'm adding to this. And, and I think this is important. Scripture does not reveal what God has planned for spirit beings in the decree we only see their activities as they involve humans. Now, this is where the, the subject becomes a little more difficult to deal with because uh, this, this key is important to remember because there's a lot of activities in the universe that angels must be involved in, but we're not told what they are and how they are. When you look at the material universe and all the activities of the stars and the movements of the galaxies and the movements of the stars, supernova, the, all the things that happen in outer space, Someone's in control of that. Well, God's in control of it, but God doesn't personally go out and do all the things. That's what angels do. So in some fashion, I'm sure they're involved in that, but you know the decree doesn't tell us that. Now, when we, really look, when we look at the decree in the Scripture, Pastor read a verse where it talked about, I will declare the decree, but that was just a piece of it, just one little piece of the decree. The decree is, involves everything that God has planned. Everything. And we're not told everything. It's a good thing we're not, we could, because it would be more than we could ever comprehend or understand or take time to learn. And we only see a little bit of it in terms of ourselves. But with angels, we see primarily where they come across into the human realm of things, with spirit beings and angels. And so that's all we know. And so we're, we are limited somewhat. But nonetheless, 
there's still an awful lot we can learn about them in Scripture. And I hope as we go through this, we're not going to stop yet, but I hope as we go through this uh, that you gain some knowledge about the spirit beings and see the uniqueness of them because there is a lot that is revealed that is really pretty astonishing about what they can do. Now, types of spirit beings. Point number two, we're going to get into this. There are The two greatest classes of spirit beings are not called angels. Now, the highest ranking spirit beings are called cherubim. And that is found 21 times in the Old Testament. And you have the references down there if you'd like to look at them. They're all listed under footnote number three. And they're, they're not mentioned in the New Testament, which is interesting. Now, one thing that's funny, and uh, uh, one of my favorite memories is uh, with, with, with Dale Spurbeck when he, was, when he was alive. I used to tease him all the time when he'd come to passages with cherubims because it used to get under his skin because cherubims is not necessary. Cherubim is plural. In Hebrew, cherubims is adding a plural to a plural because the singular is cherub. Then there's a dual would be cherub, cherubim, and cherubim is plural meaning three or more. Hebrew is peculiar that way. It has a singular, a dual, and a, and a plural. The word Elohim implies three persons or more. Not two, three. It's interesting. And the only time you see the duals are used in Scripture, it'll talk about eyes, it'll be in the plural, or in the dual rather, or hands or arms, it'll be in the dual. But when it's talking about cherubim, three or more. Now, the first time it's used, I want you to look at the first time it's used. This is a fascinating spot. Let's go back to Genesis 3.24. Here's the first time you find cherubim used, and it's just kind of a bang. It just comes upon you, and you, there's no warning that they're here. And it's just, I, my question is, why were they given this duty when you read it? Genesis chapter 3, verse, let's begin reading at verse 22. This is after the fall, and here's what God says. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. There you go, Pastor, one of us, plural. There's more than one person, and either that or else God's talking to himself. Why would you just talk to yourself and, and use a plural? <laughs> I don't think most of us would ever do that. To know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and, begin, and proceed to eat and live forever. So now God's going to do something. This is interesting. If man started eating and kept eating, he would keep on living as a fallen, miserable, wretched sinner. Now, I don't know about you, but the older I get and the more I find my old nature to be offensive, I can only imagine what God must think of it, and I don't like what I see. And the older you get and the more honest you are with yourself, we know what we're like. We know what we're like, and we're not always proud of it. Can you imagine living as long as some of these people live back here? Adam is going to live 930 years. 930 years? With an old nature? Yeah, we know what the old nature does. And so that wouldn't have been very good. So now... Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims. Now it should be just, strike that S off there. Fortunately, the modern, trans, modern English translations have all said cherubim. It should just be cherubim. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the, to keep the way of the, of the tree of life. Now my question is, why did God take at least three of the highest created spirit beings to do this? He could have used any of the angels could have done this. Why would he choose the highest, the three highest, three of the very highest rank? Because it's that important. 
It's that important. He put his, as it were, he put his best men on the job. And that, that's interesting. That's that flaming sword which turns every way. In the Hebrew, it looks like it's, it's looking at somebody that's doing this with a sword. You've got a sword going like this, and you try to get through something where it's going back and forth and round, and you'd never get through it. So I, it, it must have been something to see, and I, I'm not sure what, what visible thing you would have seen, except you wouldn't have tried to go through it. And so you wonder, well, why did God put his best there? Well, it must be because this was a pretty important thing that man didn't go there. And if you think about it, God had to make the way of salvation. And God had to have, amongst the things in the plan of God, mankind was going to have to die. So he could be resurrected and have something better. So Adam lost a lot. But he's going to get a lot more. We're going to get a lot more back than he lost. That's the beautiful part of this. So, so cherubim are there. Now, top of page two, the second rank of beings are in Isaiah 6. Now, they're only found here, but we're going to suggest, and we'll show you later, that they are going to be in the book of Revelation, I believe, for several reasons. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 6, they're they're an interesting group of, of spirit beings, and it's the only place they're found. So, there again, seraphim... It's plural, it means three or four, three or more, and it looks like there were probably four of them. And there may only be just a total of, there may have only been four of them ever created that we can tell. So Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the, the seraphim. One And each one had six wings and with two he did cover his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. So now you have a description of them. And they cried one unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they were involved in the, by the throne of God. And it says they were in the temple with him. His train filled the temple. And above, that temp, above the train in the temple you saw these individuals. Now, these are interesting because they have six wings and they covered their face, so they had one face. So they have a six-winged being, two for his face, two for his feet, and two to fly with. So, now, we didn't see that with cherubim. It didn't say anything about wings with the cherubim. But here, these do have wings, so they're, they're different. But as near as we can tell, I don't know of anything else that they are uh, connected to except for possibly what we see in Revelation, which we'll see a little bit later. We'll talk, about, talk more about that. Now, uh, well, our time's getting away from us. We're having too much fun. Okay, now within the angels, there, is a, there are ranks of authority. Now, I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1. And this is a place where, surprisingly, there's not a lot of disagreement amongst a majority of biblical scholars. They understand that these are angels, and that's... It's nice to find a place where theologians agree, because that's not very many times it happens, it seems like. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. <clears throat> now, Paul is writing, of course, to people he had never seen, and he's writing to introduce himself. And if you want to see Paul's ministry as it is uh, summarized, he does a beautiful job of summarizing his ministry, beginning about verse 24 
and really in particular, verse 27, 28, and 29. If you want to know what Paul's ministry was like, he summarizes it right here. This is what his ministry was all about. And it's very interesting to see that it's things that we hear in our church a lot about being in Christ and Christ in you and presenting each person mature in Christ. That was Paul's ministry, by the way. But he says back here, he said, speaking about Christ, that he says in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature or every creation. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, whether visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things are created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Interesting, consist. Just a quick thought there. They say that the atoms shouldn't be able to hold together. The proton and the electron, the proton and neutron, the proton and electron should push apart. Why do they not do that? Why do they all stay together? I think I have an idea right here. Somebody says they stay together, and so they do. But you'll notice you have thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Now, I believe that that is the rank of angels, and you see they come down now. The, these, these angels are not going to be equal because they all have different names. If they were, all, if they were just angels, and it was just a blank group with no, dis, no discernment between different types of angels, then you'd have to say they're all the same. Well, you do have one that's called an archangel. If you remember in, in the book of Jude, if you look over there for just a moment, I wonder, I wonder if Jude, how, uh, how Michael would have felt because he had, to confront, he had to confront the highest created being in the universe, and he is not on the same par as, as this one. But in Jude chapter 1, it's funny to say that because there's only one chapter, but that's the way we have to speak it. Uh, it's in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, did not dare bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now, he didn't bring, why did he not bring against him a railing accusation? Because this was a cherubim, a cherub, and he was just an angel, higher rank. He still respected his authority. That's quite the opposite of what it says back before that, because it says in verse 8, These filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. But Michael didn't do that. Michael didn't do that. He's the archangel. And disputed about the, ver- the, the body of Moses. Now there's something. If you want something to think about this week, maybe we should talk about it next week a little bit. What in the world did Satan want with the body of Moses? Moses is dead. What are you going to do with a dead body? Well, you can, only imagine, <laughs> you can only imagine what someone could do with that. People practically worship things, whether they're dead or alive, relics and everything else. You just, you, just think about that this week. We'll have to talk about that. And that's, that's, that would get into speculation. But it, it's, as long as we don't teach it as doctrine, we can talk about it between ourselves. So we have an archangel now. That, the name that is there, that archangel, comes uh, from a compounded word, which is the chief or primary angel. And that's what it means. He's arch or chief, primary. It's, it's, a, it's a compounded word. Now, well, we're going to... Uh, I hate to stop here, but maybe... Well, okay, let's look at... We want to go down at least to... We're going to stop at, at, by point four. So you can mark your notes. I don't want to go beyond that because there's... There's some interesting stuff we're going to get in here, too, and I, I don't want to, 
I don't want to hurry through this. But, and I think, that, I think there's a good point to be made here. Now, Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, who is, is, uh, one of, is my, in my opinion, was the greatest theologian of the 20th century, because he tended to take scripture literally, by the way. Uh, he suggested, and I, and I offer this, as, you notice I put in bold font, we offer this adaptation from Dr. Chafer as an opinion which, can, which we cannot take as absolute fact, but it certainly is consistent with what we have listed here. Now, this is the look at government of God, because God uses these, these angels or messengers. So they're obviously, they're sent from the main office, which is from the throne of God, obviously. And it's picturing government. But now, as it does so, remember that government in the Bible primarily looks at things in terms of a monarchy, because the idea of a republic is something that you don't really see in the Old Testament. You always had monarchs. You always had kings. You had one head of the government. And it's the idea of a republic or having representative government like we have, I don't think it's found in the Bible. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor, but I've never seen it. I've never seen the evidence of it. So this is in terms of monarchy. Now, according to what he suggested, and I'm going to suggest this, and I think it's not a bad suggestion. When you think of thrones, those are the, the throne is, is a pic, is picture. It, it represents rule. When you talk about the throne, it's like t- if you were to say today, the White House today said this. Well, the White House probably would say it better than Joe Biden would, you know, but then again, I shouldn't pick on him. But so the, it's just a, it's a figure of speech. You say the White House said today, it just means, you know, it's, it's, the, it's a place of authority. So the thrones were those that set as final authorities concerning mankind. Now remember, God uses these. God doesn't come down personally and do everything that happens. God makes sure things happen, but who does the work? Why does he have these angels? They're the ones who do the work. So in the, in the government of God, the thrones would be the highest authority. They would set as the final authorities over mankind. And the dominions would be those that would have regional authority over the earth. And so someone might be over North America or something like that. The principalities were those who were under them that would be uh, some of the legal people that would make sure things were carried out. They would instruct the powers, the lowest rank. They would be more like a police force. They would be more like the ones who would administer things. They'd be the lowest level. Now, I can't prove this from Scripture, but I can see evidence where this could be true, and it certainly looks like it is true according to Scripture. Now, for example, um, in 1 Kings chapter 4, let's go back there real quick and we'll stop. I don't want to keep you over tonight. We don't pay overtime, right, Pastor? So we don't, we don't pay overtime, so we have to stop on time. But in 1 Kings chapter 4, you can see just an example. Solomon had a huge government, and Solomon ruled over it all. Now, we know Solomon was king. He ruled over it, but did he do everything? Did he administer all the provincial affairs? No, he did not, because the nation was big. So in beginning at verse 7, And Solomon had 12 officers over Israel, which provided victuals or food for the king and all his household. Each man... His month in a year made provision. And so then it goes on. But you'll notice Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel. that They provided food. But they were over areas. Now it goes through and it says, for example, let's see you have, uh, these are their names. The son of Hur in Mount Ephraim. So Ephraim, that was part, the, the, the tribe of Ephraim. It was part of their territory. 
the son of Dekar in Mechaz and in Shelbim and, oh boy, Beth Shemesh and, try to read these real quick, Elon Beth Hanan and the son of Hesed, and, well, you can read through these, and you can see in the land of Hefer, so you have different areas, and you see these, these were regional governors. Now, that's kind of on the order of what you see, like, as the dominions that were over specific areas. So in human affairs, we're going to see, ultimately, that angels frequently take the, are the power behind the throne. We already saw that once, didn't we? Who was the power behind the king of Tyrus at the, back, if you go back in the Old Testament? Well, Satan stood behind him. He was the king, but the one that we would have called king, he was just the prince because the real power behind the throne was the king was Satan. Now, that kind of makes you wonder something. Who do you suppose, who do you suppose sits behind the throne of, of, in our country? Well, there's the power behind the throne, and it's not a good one. Well, we'll come back to point number four and talk about the pyramid structure because we're going to get into some other things along the way. And there's a lot of fascinating little points we're going to bring in, too, uh, along with this to, to help you understand the, the complexity of how the angels are involved in government and the things that they do. And I hope when we get done that you realize that there's an awful lot that goes on behind the scenes that we can't see. And it's a lot more complicated than we know. But ultimately, God is in control.